This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the greatest movie of all time podcast. I am Tom Duncan. And joining me this week uh, is not our normal co-host. It's in fact uh, a very special guest, a old friend of mine, Philip Martinez. Hey, how you doing, Tom? Thanks for having me. For having me. So, uh, Phil, it's been a long time since we've really uh, connected, but um, just a couple of quick questions we're going to ask all of our uh, special guests uh, that help do some co-hosting for us. What are your favorite movies? Um, like types of movies or actual the titles of them? Both. I like a lot of horror movies. Okay. I'm a guilty fan of slashers sometimes. All right. Um, Some of my favorite movies are Shutter Island. Okay. I really like that movie. Um, Scarface, Carlito's Way. Um, Both Brian De De Palma, I think, is that his? Yeah. Um, The directors. Um, I like a lot of Leonardo DiCaprio movies. Okay. Um. And horror movies, classics, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, Halloween. I like a lot of those as well. Well, that's good, because we may need a special guest appearance for most of those. Those are not Dana's favorites. Uh, I don't think I've seen almost any of those. Horror is not my genre. But, okay. um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I've actually done my own three favorites on this um show at all at any one point so just for the sake of uh keeping it 100 here um the dark knight inception and the departed a b and c in no particular order and just because the departed was kind of what got me into more uh high-minded film um study uh it was the one where i started oh maybe i should start paying attention to the oscars and some of that stuff and the two best theater experiences i've ever had were inception and the dark knight so in fact i think you went to the midnight showing of the dark knight with me we had like a group of like 25 or 30 of us and i just remember that whole thing um and of course like alan swigum just constantly ribbing on me because i'd reveal stuff that i didn't intentionally reveal oh they have harvey denton here i wonder if two-face will be in the next movie tom shut up yeah i do recall that and i actually Saw that movie two additional times in theaters, so making that three three times I saw The Dark Knight, so I should have threw that in my favorite favorite movies of all time as well, because I never see a movie more than once in the theaters, so. I very rarely do. There have been a few. I, I think I can count on maybe just two hands uh, the amount that I've seen twice or more, so. Um, the other main question we like to ask, so what uh, elements make a good movie for you? Um, I like a good good script and storyline. I think that's pretty much the foundation of any good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the the actors could make or break the movie for me. Um, okay. I mean, generally, I'll steer clear of a movie if I don't exactly care for that actor. But I think good acting is... Um, something to be said about a good movie obviously and especially the one we're going to be doing today i think has some pretty top-notch acting 
Yes, I would definitely agree. Um, I love great dialogue. Um, I love a score that really moves you, like, emotionally. And finally, and this is possibly one of the big points to me, it's why I stopped watching some TV shows. I like characters that grow during the course of the movie, that they have to adapt or they learn something new and really rise to their challenges instead of just um, becoming lower to them. You know, that they, they somehow get better or figure out something more to learn about themselves. You know, it's not a depressing character. It's somebody that's rising above their challenges. Yes, I can appreciate that. So, all right. With that being said, tonight's review, Pulp Fiction. The 1994 Quentin Tarantino, um, some would say masterpiece. Um, I will reveal right offhand, this is not my... uh, I don't think this is in my top three of Tarantino films. Um, I do enjoy the movie, but I think um, it's a little bit more disjointed than some of his other narrative ones. Um, Personal list, I go Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Then uh, Reservoir Dogs is actually was my favorite before last year. And then Inglorious Bastards. Okay. Um, And this is number four. I would actually have to put this probably number two behind Django Unchained. I'm a big fan okay. of that movie. Yeah, um, and I could buy that. Another good film of his. And so. um, honestly, I'm a guilty fan of From Dusk Until Dawn. I believe that was a Quentin Tarantino movie, or at least he acted in it. Um, so I, don't I know believe can... you are correct. I think that may might be the one that um, Clooney was in of his. Yeah. Uh, preceding kill the two kill bills and just after jackie brown if i memory serves me so uh just for background on the film as usual uh vincent vega played by john travolta and jules winfield played by samuel l jackson are hitmen with a penchant for philosophical discussions in this ultra hip multi-strand crime movie their storyline is interwoven with those of their boss gangster marcellus wallace played by ving rames His actress wife, Mia, played by Uma Thurman, struggling boxer Butch Coolidge, played by Bruce Willis, master fixer Winston Wolfe, played by Harvey Keitel, and a nervous pair of armed robbers named Pumpkin, played by Tim Roth, and Honey Bunny, Amanda Plummer. So, Phil, the question we start off almost every one of these, what is this movie about? Uh, That's a very loaded question. To start okay. off, obviously, but it's the it's the heart of the podcast, right? Um, well, at least this is the best place to start because when you when anybody asks you about a movie, you know what is it about? It's the number one thing. And so, approaching anything like that, you want to give somebody a background and really an entrance point. Sure. So, um, well, obviously, we have multiple chapters in this movie, and they are not in chronological order. No, which makes, makes explaining this somewhat difficult, but um, we have this kind of a mob boss, Marcellus Wallace, who is the boss of two, two hitmen, being John Travolta and Samuel Jackson. And basically they interweave or weave storylines with and uh, cross paths with 
a boxer who was put up by Marcellus Wallace to throw a fight in the fifth round, and then he betrayed him, thus sending these two hitmen after Bruce Willis. Uh, Bruce or uh, Marcellus Wallace's wife, Mia, who is played by Uma Thurman, um, gets taken on a date by one of the hitmen, of course, by Marcellus's. Um, he basically told him to show her a good time while he was gone. So then we cross paths with her. And then where else do we have the diner scene, obviously, which is the start and end of the movie. Um, well, let me, let me just, uh, interject slightly. All right. So I had a hard time coming up with this for all these other films. I can get at what the heart of the movie is. This is a crime thriller. That's not about anything. That's true. So you could cut all that out that I just explained there. Well, we don't normally cut. So I'll I'll just say that we just kind of record over it and, let everything kind of exist. But, um, you know, it took me a while and I, I really had to kind of read up on this in a way that I haven't on some of these other films. And there's this whole strand of, um, uh, academic work on this movie on its nihilistic approach that it's just random violence and random acts and nothing means anything now, you could theoretically say that a lot of that is found in um, that final discussion of divine intervention between um, Vincent and Jules and the difference between whether it was just random accident that the guy comes out of the bathroom and misses them completely um, and then they shoot him in the face or, you know, you adapt and say that that had some level of um, uh, divine I, I don't know, equation or handling, management, whatever. Uh, but all of this seems to be just a series of, it almost plays out. And the, the way the story unfolds is kind of like a series of short stories that are somewhat interconnected, but they all have random acts in them. You know, every piece of this is kind of turned on its head. Travolta takes out um, uh, Uma Thurman, uh, on their date, as you mentioned. And the ending of that is, is she has a drug OD. Yep. And they have to try and save her. Um, the, Marcellus is trying to get Butch to throw a fight. He doesn't. They go after him. Uh, Travolta ends up dead, or his character does. Uh, and then they get into that whole incident, which we'll get into later at the end of it, which is complete randomness. Uh, right. Finally, um, you know, the two hitmen are uh, in kind of a weird straight. They go to breakfast and they get into the middle of a robbery. Like all of these things are just small incidents of complete random um, nothingness. And that it, it ultimately all crime and all acts of violence are just incidental. You can be in the middle of any of them in any given day doing anything and that it ultimately means nothing. This is true, which I also think <clears throat> plays off the fact that they put the definition of pulp right at the beginning of the movie, which is a soft, moist, shapeless mass of matter, which yeah. is essentially everything you just said. It's nothing. But take the second part of that in the definition and fiction 
is something that's unfinished. So you have an unfinished lump of clay of true nothingness that, uh, you know, if you read any of the like true old pulp fiction crime thrillers, they were all a series of like random short stories. He just weaves these all together in a separate way. But like every part of this, and the one thing I'll give Tarantino that is extremely novel by comparison to some of the other directors is he really does a, um, make an effort to play around with a nonlinear narrative. Like all of the stuff that he does in Reservoir Dogs, which I think works, um, are all of the callbacks and the flashbacks to everything else before it. And yeah. it brings you into that and gives a slow reveal. Honestly, Reservoir Dogs could give you, like, lead into something like Memento. Like, Memento doesn't happen or doesn't have the same narrative effectiveness if you don't have something like Reservoir Dogs before it. So there are directors taking off of him, borrowing from that stuff eventually. The other thing, and I'll say this, this has some of the best dialogue uh, in cinema. Like, yeah, the conversations uh, are just immense. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think this movie has way too many good quotes to even pick from. Oh, I know. I have um, probably like five or six uh, nominees for each of the categories. So, Yeah, I mean, the dialogue is really good. And um, we might get into it a little bit later, but I was also going to mention something that I thought made the dialogue and this movie good is how many one take shots there are in the movie you have like full-blown conversations without any cuts or anything mm -hmm. and i thought that was really clever and made the dialogue that much better yeah and it seems that he shoots dialogue in different ways in almost every movie that he does like he uses jump cuts for inglorious bastard he uses long takes for this one um, he uses more uh, close-ups and over-the-shoulders for Once Upon a Time. So he really does a lot of different camera work um, to highlight certain aspects of different films that he's done. Yeah. And, I mean, some of the dialogue is, it's still great, but it's like one of the first um, one-take shots I noticed was when you have um vincent vega and um, jules yep jules walking up to the apartment there's a whole one take there and they're just talking about a guy who allegedly massaged mia wallace's <laughs> Wallace feet and he got thrown out a four-story window and they talk about 10 minutes straight about that and somehow it was great you mean putting your uh Mouth down by the holiest of holies isn't in the same league as uh, massaging a woman's feet. <laughs> yeah, and let me ask you this. Would you massage a man's feet? No, but that's the whole point. <laughs> right, but that's what uh, Vincent asks Jules. He says, would you, I know. Would, would you massage a, a man's feet? And he goes, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If uh, this might be one of our more explicit episodes when I start doing some of the quotes. Yeah, I, I just realized that as I said that, I'm like, I don't think I have a quote that doesn't have any swearing in it, but. Yeah, I mean, that's all throughout this film. But frankly, any good crime thriller has to have it unless you have James Cagney. <laughs> yeah, and I, I got to add um, on your Inglorious Bastards episode, I heard 
your guest Sarah say that she didn't like Tarantino because he was too over the top. And I think that's what draws me to him is how over the top he is, honestly. Um, I do think he's an acquired taste, but I appreciate his over the topness in his movies. Oh, yeah. When so I don't know if um, I know I put out a prologue episode and I had to recut it recently, but um, we have a five year embargo on um, uh, reviewing any movie. So unfortunately, it's going to be another four years before I can do Once Upon a Time. But that last scene, I probably could do 10 minutes by myself just from that last scene. Yeah. I mean, and you want to talk about over the top. I busted it in the theater. I, I literally, I lost it. I was laughing so hard. Just the grotesque over-the-topness uh, finalized by a fucking flamethrower. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, we're, we're preempting a four-year-in-the-making episode. So, uh, all right. Um, what is your relationship to this movie? Um, well, I got to say, I saw this movie way younger than I should have. <laughs> I I somehow found found a way to watch this movie when I was probably who knows 13 14 years old and mm. um obviously which whichever age you watch this movie in I think it definitely sticks with you. And I just from top to bottom, I've always just appreciated this movie, and it's always been something I quote or think of, or even when I hear one of the songs from the movie, I can't not yeah. hear that song and think of the exact scene that it, it's in in the movie. Like, I put this in the top pantheon of, I, I know you wanted to save that for later, and that's fine. Uh, we'll, we'll cut to that at, towards the end with the soundtrack, but I do want to say this is probably one of the better um, pop movie um soundtracks that you know it's up there with like um mean streets and um i'm trying to think there are some other really good ones and i am drawing a blank all of a sudden um of just like pop movie um oh guardians of the galaxy the original like yeah some of those where like they just have a great blend of different songs and uh Wolf of Wall Street's pretty good at that. But then Scorsese really does a, a great deal of um, pop song uh, overlay in his uh, soundtracks. So, all right. Um, as far as me, my relationship to this one, this is actually only the second time I've seen this movie. Uh, I think the first time I watched it was in college, um, probably about uh, seven years ago or so. And I remember it being... Um, I couldn't deal with some of the narrative cuts. Like I, I was too married to the linear storytelling for me, maybe to appreciate it in the same way, but I think I've gotten even a um, better appreciation of a few of the movies we've already done. And this is going to be episode number 11. Um, but uh, a couple of them where um, on second viewing, I, I get a new light or I'm watching it through a new lens. I know we were watching um, Casablanca the other day in quarantine and, I've seen that thing probably a dozen times, but you, when you start looking at it through uh, the lens of the podcast and you really um, start to look at it with that kind of really critical eye, you start to notice all of the little nuances that are just glorious. And similarly, I get a different appreciation for some of these films in uh, how they're shot, um, the dialogue, some of the acting performances that you don't notice on first viewing especially because you're looking so much for like 
how the story plays out in the plot. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised this is only your second time because I feel like once you watch it through once, you almost need to rewatch it once you understand fully everything that happens and you can, like you said, rewatch it with that new lens and kind of see what you missed the first time and all of those things and kind of piece together and make sense of everything earlier than you would have the first time. So I've been doing some more rewatching here in quarantine because um, my little sister, Sarah, who's already been on, you already mentioned it, but um, is living with me and um, she uh, does not have the same film history that I do. So we've been uh, getting a very rough uh, overview of a lot of different classic movies but um, uh, I made a pact with myself about three years ago that I don't really rewatch stuff very often, um, if at all. I try and watch something new all the time because there's just so much content to try and get through, whether it's movies or TV shows, and you can't keep up with all of it if you constantly are rewatching stuff. So, um, you know, it, it's been a struggle. I don't, uh, basically, it's to say I don't rewatch a whole lot of things. So it's not yeah. just this movie. It's it's a lot of them. But all right. So we'll move into some of the early categories here. Um, best performance for you. Best performance to me, I think, has to go to John Travolta. OK. And, um, I say that because I think you see kind of his range as an actor throughout this movie. Um, you know, you see him normal. You see him as badass. You see him high on heroin off his ass through about the whole jackrabbit slim scene so uh, let me just quick cut in on that one how ahead of their time was the whole heroin scene you know cocaine's getting out heroin's getting coming back in and how much in vogue is heroin right now due to the whole uh hair or um uh opioids crisis i mean that that was ahead of its time right there that Really was, which I thought about that when I watched this as well, how they're, you know, cocaine's out, heroin's in, and especially, you know, I mean, this is early 90s, I guess mm-hmm. cocaine, was ma- cocaine was mainly big in the 80s, or that's kind of when it had its spike, 70s, 80s. Yeah, but um, like, this is just uh, before we started like having the huge opioid um, prescription um, binge, like yeah. that was mid to... Um, uh, early nineties. And so really being ahead of the curve on that one, I just thought it was a, an interesting throw in. I I'm sure he had no idea, but still, you know, that's one of those things that ages really well. Yeah, I agree. And I think also John Travolta has the best performance in this movie. Um, Honestly, I don't care for a lot of John Travolta, especially later John Travolta. <laughs> um, so I think this was one of the more memorable John Travolta performances in his career, I recall. Um, obviously, there's some stuff older, like, you know, I don't know, Saturday Night Fever or whatever, which I never watched. But I know yep. that's a pretty iconic role of his. But to me, this was the only like, one I really attached to, in a way. Right. He's a star for Grease and... Um... Saturday Night Fever, but he's his best performance probably is this movie. Uh, so I had down Samuel L. Jackson. And it's just because I think, you know, Samuel L. Jackson is um, almost a caricature of himself at this point. You know, get my yeah. these motherfucking snakes off this motherfucking plane and 
you know, just being Samuel L. Jackson, but almost all of that caricature comes from this movie. Like, almost everything about him uh, comes from being that type of guy in this movie. Even, yeah. like, the year later where um, he gets that uh, semi-starring role in Die Hard 3, um, you know, you still, he's always looked back on and he always takes on the same demeanor. Almost every character, I don't care if it's him being in Star Wars or um, eventually Django, he just takes on this certain persona of, like, steely, I don't take nothing from no motherfuckers, yeah, you know, exactly. type of attitude, and it's all from this. It's, yeah, especially it, every with, part of his career can be owed to this movie. Especially with his Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, yep. I think that kind of cemented it into his acting career for history. That will be making a comeback later. So, all right, uh, best minor performance. Minor performance. Oof. You know. It, it took a while for me to come up with mine. Uh, I'll be quite honest. But go ahead. I would probably... Man, because there's so many A-list stars in this movie that it's kind of tough. I'd probably say Uma Thurman. Um, okay. Would you consider her a minor? I mean, she, oh, is, yeah. in, she is in a lot of this movie, but I, I do like so, her, her scene. Samuel L. Jackson, even though he's like a prominent character throughout, um, was nominated for supporting actor for this movie. So by that extension, um, not anybody is any other than maybe Travolta is enough in this movie in order to be a major character. That's true. And I know that um, from some research I did that Bruce Willis kind of broke the bank when he signed on to this movie because he was an expensive actor around there. Oh, yeah. I mean, and this is between the second and third diehard at this point. Right. So this was probably the height of his career. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I like, I like Uma Thurman's acting in this movie. I like her character. I thought she played Mia really well. She really made her own personality in the short time she was in the movie. Okay. All right. I can buy that. I originally had Bruce Willis down. And then on second thought, I went in a completely different vein. I went Christopher Walken. Okay. Because I just love that scene so much, and he plays it so well. And I, you know, it's almost the same attitude he brings to uh, his SNL performances because he knows it's slightly comedic, and he's just playing it so well. Right, and I think kind of off of what you said about Samuel Jackson, like you know, you get the vintage Samuel Jackson from here on out. I feel mm -hmm. like Christopher Walken probably came into this with that already you know he's kind of the hey you know this was your dad's watch and you know he, he had to hide it up his ass <laughs> yeah you know he <laughs> for five years and then i hit it on my ass for two years and it's just and he's in there for i i do like that pick because he's only in there for that one scene right yep and and it's just to give background of why the watch matters exactly that's his only purpose which also, mind you, adding to the this movie is about nothing, that entire first part of that section of the film is Bruce Willis um, being worried about going back for his watch. But after he kills Vincent Vega in his apartment, he doesn't even bother to stay and collect the watch. He leaves. He, he puts the watch on his hand the second he finds it. 
Oh, I didn't see that. I missed that. Because it's it's on the giraffe on the nightstand next to the bed. He finds it, puts it on, and then when he comes out, that's when he realizes somebody else is in the apartment. Okay, because I thought it was he just went and like got the toaster uh, strudel or toaster pastries or whatever out of the cupboard, and that's when he notices the gun. But all yeah. right, I'll I'll look at it again. I'll have to go back and watch. So ah, I might I might be having some egg on my face for that one. Oh well. Uh, your most charismatic award. Charismatic. Hmm. I would probably go Samuel Jackson for that yep, one. And that's that's me too. He just exudes a certain level of charisma and confidence through the whole thing. And he's just pulling Travolta's leg like throughout that entire diner scene. I mean, just playing it like a fiddle. Exactly, and he did everything big in that movie from when he was, you know, shooting people in the face, and then when he had his divine intervention clarity at the end of the movie, it was all just classic over-the-top Samuel Jackson, and he was did it in his own way, and it was, mm-hmm. it was really good. I did, I did think he was most charismatic, for sure. Yeah, I think... I, I don't know how you could really nominate anybody else. I mean... There are some good performances. Like I enjoyed Harvey Keitel. Quentin Tarantino as um, Jimmy was good, um, and you know some different performances. But there's there's nobody like Sam doing this movie. So all right, I have uh, five nominees for best scene. I will go through them, and if you want to throw any in at the end, let me know. All right, number one, Big Kahuna Burger. Yep, that's probably the I- iconic. Yep. Um, well, he brings up the Royale with cheese again, which we can talk about later, because I'm sure that's in your top quotes. Oh, hells yeah. Uh, Divine Intervention. Yep. Butch escapes and comes back with a katana. Okay. Yep. The Coffee Shop Robbery. All right. Uh, I love you, Honey Bunch. So the opening first, like, ten minutes of the movie. Oh, Honey Bunny? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was... Was it? Oh, yeah, it is Honey Bunny. My bad. Yep, because she's actually credited as Honey Bunny in the credits. Okay. And then accidentally killing Marvin. Yep, that that is a good scene. Um, All right. Any others you want to nominate? I mean... I did like the Jackrabbit Slims scene okay. quite a bit. Um, the dialogue was good there, and then the dancing was oddly great. Yeah. And that was that was also another um, long one-take scene where there's so much going on, but you see John Travolta walk around the entire place, and it's all in one take. So you have all these waiters and waitresses cheering and doing everything, and they just kind of follow behind him. I thought mm-hmm. that was really cool, and you really couldn't do that in two takes. No. So, I would throw that in there, but I do agree that the Butch escapes with the katanas probably, and comes back with the katana is going to be my number one scene. Okay. Man, if I have to just pick one. Poof. Poof. <laughs> 
Well, since you picked that one, I'm going to go with uh, accidentally killing Marvin just because it's so ridiculous and so sudden in the whole thing. He just accidentally shoots him in the face. (laughs) What did you do? I just shot Marvin in the face. Yeah, which I read up on. Apparently, the original script, they were just supposed to shoot him in the throat and he was supposed to die a very slow, painful death. And then they shoot him in the head to put him out of his misery. But the actor... Bill Lamar, who plays Marvin, yeah, suggested that they just blow his head off because it'd be more funny. Which, Which it was. <laughs> it was, and it was highly unexpected. All right. Uh, so, favorite scene? Favorite scene? Yeah, so there's a difference. So, like, I always put that... Um, my uh, my favorite Star Wars is different from the best Star Wars. Okay. Um, man, I would have went Butch with the Katana for this one, but... Okay. I, I think I would have to go with the Jackrabbit Slims. Okay. Uh, I just love the context of the family watch. Yeah. I mean, is... It, it is endlessly rewatchable. You're trying to explain to, like, a six-year-old kid why this watch matters. Yeah, which, and I don't know if we'll discuss this um, in a bit here, but I think that scene plays huge significance and irony to the um, the gimp scene. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you talk about his grandfather had that watch, and then, you know, he didn't make it out of the pow camp and then his dad had the watch and he had to shove it up his ass for five years and then he didn't make it out of the pow camp and then christopher walken had to shove it up his ass for two years and then now he has the watch and then the fact that he forgets his watch or his his girlfriend forgets his watch which leads him to the whole gym scene so basically this watch is almost cursed at this point. Yep. And it basically, in a sense to me, the way I understood it, it basically pulls him into a POW camp, more or less. He's, That's an interesting thought. I guess I didn't think of that. Yeah, he's kind of um, a prisoner of war at that point. And then, for whatever reason, this watch draws things into people's asses. So you have Marcellus Wallace getting raped in the ass. While, God. while the guy who actually has the watch escapes the POW camp. So it's kind of... It's the most unusual scene of the entire movie. It really is. And I think for some reason that watch and people's asses and being trapped in a terrible situation, it's just ironic to me. All right. So um, did you want to... Uh, take a break here, or should we go through the lines? We can go through the lines. All right. So um, I have a few nominees for best line, and I will try and do my best acting job. All right. So Winston Wolf, get it straight, Busta. I'm not here to say please. I'm here to tell you what to do. And if self-preservation is an instinct you possess, you better fucking do it and do it quick. I'm here to help. If my help's not appreciated, lots of luck, gentlemen. 
Okay, I like that one. I do like that one. Uh, number two from your favorite scene, Mia Wallace. Don't you hate that? Vincent, hate what? Uncomfortable silences. Why do, do we feel it's unnecessary or it's necessary to yak about bullshit in order to be comfortable? I don't know. That's a good question. That's what, or that's when you know you found somebody really special. You could just shut the fuck up for a minute and comfortably share silence. Yep, that was. I do think that, that was, is oddly profound. It is, and that was on one of my favorite lines as well. All right, uh, number three, Jules um, in <laughs> the uh, big Kahuna Burger scene. No, it's not time yet. Let's hang back. Look, just because I wouldn't give no man a foot massage don't make it right for Marcellus to throw Antoine into a glass motherfucking house. Fucking up the way the nigga talks. That shit ain't right. Motherfucker don't or do that shit to me. He better paralyze my ass because I'd kill the motherfucker. You know what I'm saying, Vincent? I ain't saying it's right, but you're saying a foot massage don't mean nothing, and I'm saying it does. Now, look, I've given a million ladies a million foot massages, and they all meant something. We act like they don't, but they do. And that's what's so fucking cool about them. There's a sensuous thing going on where you don't talk about it, but you better know it. She knows it. Fucking Marcellus knew it. And Antoine should have better, fucking better known better. I mean, that's his fucking wife, man. He ain't going to have no sense of humor about that shit. You know what I'm saying? Yep, I do. And that's that's right before um, Vincent says. That's before him? they go in. And he said, would you give a man a foot massage? That's right before the, and then they go in. But yeah. Yep. All right. And then finally, Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the iniquities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Yep, that's definitely top. top yeah, right that, that's, that's what I thought too. Uh, which one is uh, your honorable mention or did you have a couple of other ones? Um, I do think the explanation of the why they call a quarter pounder royal with cheese, which is going to be, and you know what they call a, a quarter pounder with cheese in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? No, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. What do they call it? They call it a royale with cheese. A royale with cheese? What do they call a Big Mac? Well, a Big Mac's Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. What do they call a Whopper? I don't know. I didn't go into Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did like the Royale with cheese because I think that's pretty iconic when you think of Pulp Fiction and that oh, one yeah. sticks out to me. In fact, it's the second use of it is that that is my nominee for funniest line. Mmm, this okay. is a tasty burger. Vincent, you ever had a big kahuna burger? Want a bite? They're real tasty. Ain't hungry. Well, if you like burgers, give them a try sometime. 
Me, I can't usually get them because my girlfriend's a vegetarian, which pretty much makes me a vegetarian. I do love the taste of a good burger. You know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in France? Um, no. Tell them, Vincent. Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. You know why they call it that? Brett. Uh, because of the metric system? Check out the big brain on bread. You're a smart motherfucker. That's right. The metric system. All right. You may have to uh, send that one to me so that I can put it on with the rest here. All right. Um, finally, most indelible moment. What do you have for this one? So I had a few different ones. There's the obvious Royale with cheese, which I think is probably one of the most memorable. Uh, I did renominate the Katana scene. Um, saving Mia with adrenaline, because it's just so uh, unusual for a movie. Uh, accidentally killing Marvin. And what the fuck is in the case? Like, okay. it's like a glowing goldish type of thing, but they never tell you what's in the case. Yep, I would agree with that. Um, I do think the butch scene, for me, um, the katana scene, or the gimp scene, whatever you want to call it. But sure. I, but yes, with the, the case, because there is a lot of lore surrounding this um, movie, mm -hmm. the case has always been brought up. Some people thought it was Marcellus Wallace's soul. Um, to me, I don't even know what I think is in the case, but Quentin Tarantino has been quoted saying it's up to the viewer to think that, which kind of annoys me because I want to know what was <laughs> intended to be in the case. Yeah. No, that's, that's like what true poetry is. The intended audience makes up its own ending. Exactly. But, all right, so we'll put down all three. Um, All right. So before we get to the grain, we're just going to take a short, quick break, and we'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help, your, help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and, or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Right. And we're back. All right. So uh, we are here now to discuss uh, the braiding rubric, uh, as we do with every film that we have on this. So this being your first time, I will try and give mine first on all of these, and we'll just go through them uh, to finish out our um, final grade. Um, Legacy is the first one up. And I had it at a 9.5. Um, this is still talked about as Tarantino's great masterpiece. Uh, most people view it as 
um, a signature cultural film. It's brought up in the conversation um, constantly. Honestly, I don't know how it wasn't on the AFI's top list of either of the top 100 films of all time, um, just because of how it's revered uh, by certain circles. Um, you know, it was at the time, it is still now, and it's it's just one of those that kind of has its own uh, pantheon of infamy. There are certain movies that just have like a, a resonance that live beyond a certain time. And this is just one of them. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And I gave it a nine. For okay. Legacy. Um, All right. Like you said, when you mentioned Quentin Tarantino, I think this movie is one that I strongly resonate Quentin Tarantino with. Like I would put this at the probably most popular one of his movies. Um, you did say it was a cultural classic, which I agree with. There's a lot of cult following um, the Pulp Fiction and a lot of lore surrounding the movie. So I think that this is still... And, you know, for what we've said of it, like the Royale with Cheese has some still cultural relevance pretty much from this film. So it is pop culturally still... Um, part of the lexicon. I don't think it's in the same way that it was during the 90s. Um, so some of that maybe hasn't aged as well, but I think this is still treated as one of those top movies. And it's certainly treated it by most as Tarantino's top film. Um, so given that and that he's considered at least, you know, one of the top probably 10 directors since about 1960, um, you know, you got to put this up in that that upper echelon. Yeah. And what the only the only thing that isn't really relevant, like you said, is probably smoking indoors now. <laughs> sure, but like you know, I honestly smoking still is um, uh, other than in California, which I think this is where that or, or the whole movie takes place in California or at Los Angeles. I think um, they don't really say as much, do they? Oh yeah, they do. They make reference to it being the valley and such. Okay, so but. Um, you know, California is like really restrictive on smoking at this point. But other than that, um, you know, but we'll get into that with classicness. So uh, impact or significance, I have a nine. Um, the way he plays with story structure and kind of um, in the same ways that he does crime thrillers. Um, I don't want to say that he was some of the first, but the way in which he pieced it all together, especially between this and Reservoir Dogs, I think gave license to certain people to make um, more daring crime thrillers. Like, certainly Dog Day Afternoon is um, well before this and has like a certain element to the same um, script as Reservoir Dogs. But um, this, with its narrative, or narrative playing around and uh, the soundtrack and all of the lines and what it did for some of these guys' careers. Like, um, Tarantino revitalized certain careers, um, particularly in this movie. Um, I, I gave it a nine. Yeah, I gave it an eight. Um, okay. Because I do think, kind of off of what you said, he, I think this kind of is the structure for a lot of his future films. Um, and to mention that he has a lot of these actors in a lot of his future films. Yep. Mainly Uma Thurman, 
Samuel Jackson um, that I can think of off the top of my head. And Oh, Harvey Keitel's in just about every Tarantino film. Yep, that too. I always forget, even though he... Has... He's he's actually in Inglorious Bastards doing a narrative or a narration voice. That's the only part he plays. Like, yeah. that's how we're... It, between that and... Um, Oh, Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen's like in every other Tarantino film, too. Yeah, that that as well. So I gave it an eight for that. Okay. Uh, novelty, I had it at an eight. And part of this is reflective on um, some of the influences that um, Tarantino had for this movie. Um, so taking some of the crime thriller, I already mentioned um, this has elements of uh, something like um, Reservoir Dogs, which had some takeoff of like Dog Day Afternoon. There are also some, some other action thrillers from the 80s that uh, he borrowed from. Um, I know um, he's a huge fan of King of New York. It was one of his favorite movies, um, which is kind of an under-the-radar one for most people. But like the amount of violence and just sheer raw um, uh, crime thriller aspect to this um, isn't the same. But the impact of the nonlinear narrative and trying to do a lot of this stuff um, in different fashion and kind of the structure of this, plus some of the dialogue I do think um, is a bit novel if it's, although it's not like peak novelty, it's not discussing any major topics. And I don't think it, um, it furthered the crime genre, but I don't know if it like reinvented it. Yeah, I agree. Did you say you gave it an eight? I did. Okay, that's what I gave it as well. Okay. Um, like you said, they're not talking about any certain things, but I think the movie is just like, as it is, you take it, you could watch it at any point in your lifetime and appreciate this movie. Um, as far as crime, yeah, I definitely think it impacted that, and it's um, basically everything you said on that one I had for... And we both scored it an eight, so. Yep. Uh, so, classicness. Uh, I gave this a nine and a half. There's simply nothing about this film that really has aged poorly. Um, you know, even the rape scene, we've gotten um, much more um, engaged on certain topics of that and how some of that um, all plays out. And the inclinations of the culture at large um, as we've kind of become a little bit more liberal, if you want to call it that, um, just generally. Um, but, um, you know, the the heroine already being part of a callback or uh, we are, we're already saying that that, you know, picked up, um, you know, the 50s diners uh, throwback uh, restaurant key or niche like some of those exist all over the place and have certain uh, elements of that. Um, you know, there, there really isn't any particular part of this film that I thought aged poorly. Yep. And I kind of touched on that novelty, but <clears throat> yeah, there's really nothing that dates this film. Like I said, other than maybe smoking indoors, but sure. I mean, that's, that's even kind of, I guess, newer um, within the last 10, 20 years. But, I mean, this film was made um, 26 years ago and or came out 26 years ago. And I really don't think that it other than like 
you know, maybe a millennial is, where's his iPhone? Um, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't see where anybody's going to have a problem watching this film and really thinking anything of it. Like the, the narrative plays out and there's really nothing subject material or otherwise that it has a problem as far as I'm concerned. Right. I agree. So what did you have for your score on that one? I, I think I missed it. I had a nine on classicness. Okay. All right. What'd you have for rewatchability? This I gave a 9.5. Okay. Um, I know I touched on it earlier, but um, with the chapters all being kind of mixed up and not in order, and then watching it once through, seeing everything, giving it that rewatch kind of gives you the ability to look at it in a different light and kind of understand why things are happening the way they are throughout the movie. And there's also, like... Um, some trivia if you watch the opening scene supposedly Butch's motorcycle the first noise you hear riding by the diner and then there um, in the opening scene you also see Vince and Vega get up and go to the bathroom things like that if you research you can actually re-watch and be like oh yeah that did happen and then it kind of makes it a little more fun to watch I would say in that aspect but also just the plot and understanding that more on the second time around. And when I watched it the other night, it was probably the fifth time I watched it. I was thoroughly entertained the entire time. So I actually had it at a seven, which this is the one um, reverse category that you and I seem to have. I thought you'd be a little bit higher in some of the grading and you went a little bit lower than I did um, save for novelty. Um, But um, this is not, one of my top ones just because um, I, I I like the story to have something that is a little bit more or has something more to say than just meaninglessness um, or the nihilistic attitude that it takes towards it. This is fun and it's classic for um, just the attitude it takes and some of the acting jobs, but ultimately I need a little bit more... Um, from the narrative to uh, give me a a little bit different sense. Now, you know, the reason I I included rewatchability even in this category thing is, is I don't think we give enough credit. So like, um, I know we've mentioned it before, but there are going to be some very tough films. Um, I, I'm going to really dread looking for um, when we do the Schindler's list episode. The first time I watch, I've only watched Schindler's once. I don't think I needed to watch it a second time. I will for the podcast, but it is such an emotionally devastating movie that, um, like it's going to be hard to rewatch. Then again, you know, we got to give a little bit more credit to something like star Wars that I've probably seen 40 times, you know, where the point of a movie sometimes is to revisit it and get more out of it. Or some of those other things. I understand that like novelty and trying to, um, express a point point of view in some art, but I think you d- do have to have uh, another edge to this that makes it the greatest by itself. So, uh, audience score for this one was a nine point six. So when we uh, factor that all in, um, and let me just put in the last couple here, That comes out to a 52.85 total, and it now becomes the number one film on the list. What do you think about that? I feel honored to be a part of the 
podcast with the first highest rated movie. I'm well, sure that may hold the record for a little bit of time here. It might. I'm sure. I'm sure at some point it'll surpass. But yeah, I think when we get to some of the other ones, there are going to be the anniversary episodes, and I may ask uh, certain special guests back on to see if we can do a big collective um, when we do certain ones. Uh, we haven't released the name of uh, what we're going to do for the 25th or the 50th episode. Um, I uh, have those uh, picked out, but we haven't told anybody yet. So, but um, you know that those those may surpass it. But at least for now, you were a part of uh, the number one. Hey, I'm happy to be a part of the greatest movies of all time history. So, all right. Um, just uh, to put this in perspective, this was uh, nominated for Best Picture, Director, Actor for Travolta, Supporting Actor for Samuel L. Jackson, and support or, or Supporting Actress and Film Editing, uh, Supporting Actress for Uma Thurman. Um, it did win for Best Original Screenplay for Tarantino, um, but uh, this is the year of Forrest Gump. Now, that's a movie I love, but it's been thoroughly picked on since. But this is possibly one of the great years for, um, like, Best Picture nominees and overall. So Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, which is an underrated film, The Shawshank Redemption, and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Which, on IMDb, Shawshank Redemption is the number one rated movie of all time. Yeah, People absolutely love that film, but it did not get uh, a ton of, like, it was a flop in theaters. It was one of those that um, only became known because it was a cable movie. And then it just became a slow burner. Yep, absolutely. So, um, Tom Hanks won for Forrest Gump. Um, Robert Zemeckis uh, ended up getting Best Director. I mean, realistically looking at it... um, the, the big winner out of this one was Forrest Gump with those top three. But uh, you had kind of a spread out um, rest of the cast. Um, uh, Forrest Gump got best uh, screenplay um, based on previous material. Pulp Fiction pretty much uh, won because it was a best original uh, in the year where some of the other ones were the adapted. And um, so like Shawshank, Quiz Show, and Forrest Gump were all in the adapted category. Hmm. So I don't know if like I we haven't we're going to get to Forrest Gump at some point, but this is one of those where um, Dana suggested we do bonus episodes on specific Oscars and what should have won. But I think we have to review all of the films before we do so. Okay. But like another one from that year that possibly could have been had they had an expanded Oscars list. Um you, that was the year of Speed. It was also the year of The Lion King. We also had Legends Speed. of the Fall. Speed, is that your favorite movie, Tom? You didn't put that on your list. It is not, but <laughs> it's an all right action film. It is. It's a little ridiculous. And then don't even get well, started with Speed 2. But it's premise, you know. That, you at least have that. That's so, true. Ed Wood was also this year, and Hoop Dreams. So, uh, just a few noted mentions. So, um, how do you feel about the first podcast there, Philly? Um, I enjoyed my time, and I hope you 
have me back in the future to do another one. Oh, absolutely. Or- Any you want to call in question here, we can get you on. And I'd uh, I'd love to be a part of one when Dana's available. All right. Catch well, up with you, you fine gents. I don't know. We'll work something out here down the line. And uh, like I, uh, I think I mentioned a few of the upcoming ones we have. Um, we have Groundhog Day coming up uh, on our regular Wednesday episode um, with Dana. Uh, the following week, we have the movie Big. It'll be our first Tom Hanks movie. And following that up, um, will be our second um, Scorsese visit. So we're actually starting to double up on some of these directors. Um, we're doing Taxi Driver. Okay. So I've actually never seen Taxi Driver. I should almost watch it twice just to make sure I get everything out of it, but um, we'll see what uh, happens with that. So, I do wish we could chat longer but I'm having an old friend for dinner. After all, tomorrow is another day. As always, please subscribe, rate, and comment on the show from wherever you get your podcasts. It will help everyone else find the show and share in the fun. If you would like to suggest a movie we should review or potentially guest star on one of the episodes, please follow either Dana or I on Twitter uh, at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan.